Hi, podcasting from New York. They say if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. This is Pushing Boundaries. Most of today's commentary on complex social issues is binary, unproductive, and flat-out lazy. With this podcast, I'm looking to hopefully elevate these conversations, and as a lifelong educator, hopefully learn a few things along with you. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. All right, so I just I just wanted to... Um, you know, welcome everybody back to Pushing Boundaries, and um, that you know we have another guest today, uh, Mr. Larry Carthan, and he's going to enlighten us in terms of his journey as a black man uh, in this in this country. Uh, Mr. Larry Carthan, can you just offer us your your bio? I know you gave me a a, a pretty uh, hefty bio, and you've accomplished a, quite a deal of uh, uh, things throughout your lifetime. But can you give us a summary of of your bio and who you are? Yeah, first things first, I am a black man. I just want to make that clear. Uh, well, my life, my journey started, <laughs> you know, it was a little rocky one, single parent household. You know, my mother was a, a visionary on how she wanted her, her seven children to, to grow up. And she structured us that in that way to make sure that we have an idea exactly what's out in society and what's, what we will be possibly experiencing as we grow older. You know, I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I, I moved to Queens probably in the uh, early, late 80s, around uh, 85, 86, around that time. But my journey has been a struggle uh, as a young black man in society. I didn't really know where I was going as a young man and what direction I wanted to take. But uh, all of my life experiences brought me into what I'm doing today, saving lives. In my bio, basically, uh, I started several programs throughout New York City. I worked on Wall Street for many years, uh, top-notch Fortune 500 companies. I was blessed with that. I had a lot of experience with these corporations, which allowed me to bring it into the community with my experiences, to share with my brothers and sisters on what they need to do. Even though I'm doing music now and enhancing a lot of the schools in the geographic area, I still give them that input of how to save money, how to invest, how to do things along with the drumming, because that's what saved my life over the years. So tell me, I mean, let's go, let's go back into your early, earliest um, life. Um, and growing up, you say you grew up and you came out of Brooklyn, Brooklyn, go Brooklyn. Um, you come out, you came out of Brooklyn and, and, and so what was life like and in that, in living, in, in having to navigate your community and navigate, you know, things that were happening in the community, what's, what's not true about your household? What's not true about, you as, a, as you as a young man during that time. You know, there are a lot of things that are said about these communities. We saw Minister Society, we saw Boys in the Hood, and right. we know those scripts, right? Um, and so what's your script during those early days? Well, in the early days, I, I'm gonna be frank and honest with you, you know, we, we did the welfare thing and we did the whole, you know, survival thing with the family. Uh, people really didn't realize that we were poor. You know, we were very poor in a way where we had to struggle each day to survive. But on the outside, it looked like we had it going on. That's how my mother had it structured. The environment was very, very rough growing up in Brooklyn at the time. Um, most of the people that we knew in the community, was, everybody was pretty much on welfare at that time, trying to survive, being out on the lines, you know, going for the food and all this kind of thing and the food stamps and, you know, just a matter of survival. But I believe that that survival method made me who I am today. It made me more of a structured person, 
a, a more of a caring person. A lot of people may see me on the outside and say, well, I'm not, I, I don't do enough. I'm not caring enough. But, but from what I come from in my background, plus I love my people and I love my community. So, I mean, how was it, how was it that you didn't end up, I mean, there, there, were, there were a lot of uh, traps out there, right? And there was drugs, right? There oh. was violence. You know, there, were, there, were gang, there was gang influence in the community. Um, how come those things didn't capture you? How, how, how come those things didn't take you off track or, or, or from your journey? Like, what, uh, did, you, did you engage in those things? What happened? I mean, how did you avoid it? How did you navigate that? Well, you know, I had, you know, older siblings, you know, in the household. So my thing was, I just always knew, uh, which is instilled in me, that it had to be more than, than shooting dope and, and, and smoking weed and drinking and all that kind of stuff. Because I had, remember, I had, we always had an older family member that was engaging in these activities. And as you're young and as you're growing up, you see that the, 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 the instruction that it was taking on their lives. And it was visual. It was not like something that you, you see on TV now and you hear about it. It was face to face. So I understood that I just didn't want to wind up like that. And my mother came, you know, I had cousins and family members that were indulging in a lot of drugs and gang activity. And my mother kept us away from that. She kept us more into a positive light. She would take us places where things was positive. She made sure that we saw the other side of it, not just the bad side. She would get us up early in the morning and take us down to the village and walk around or take us down to Fifth Avenue or take us down to Wall Street and just walk around. You know, we had barely enough money to get on the train to go down there, but she would get us all together and say, well, this is something else you can think about. This is something else I want you to, to visualize in your mind as a young man, 9, 10, 11, that this is a possibility you could be here someday, that you can go either way, but I'm gonna constantly reinforce this positive thing every day, and regardless of the environment, shooting and killing, we used to walk over dead bodies outside, somebody that got shot the night before, stabbed in the, in the neck or whatever it may be, and we used to see that going to school in the morning. Mm -hmm. and, that, and we didn't have no psychological help back then, and no, no, no kind of treatment to go in and say, well, you're traumatized. This goes on every day in our community and we don't get that type of psychological help. But since I had a strong background, my mom, she was so strong, Wilma Cawthon, they call her the first lady of Brooklyn. She made sure that we were ready to go and that the foundation was set. And no matter what came our way, we should be able to overcome obstacles because we saw the good and the bad. And when you see the good and the bad, you can, you can pretty, much, pretty much balance it all out. How many, how many siblings did you have? Six. Okay, okay. Single parent. Um, most of the time, from what I can remember growing up, I think we were in a two-bedroom apartment. I shared, shared uh, the beds with, with some of my brothers. You know, you know, he would sleep at one end, I would sleep at the other end. And the, the major thing is make sure you wash your feet, man, because, you know, <laughs> you know, cause, you know we, we're all in this thing together, so you got to make sure you're straight right now. And for most of the time growing up, man, it was just tight, you know, but, but you had so much love and camaraderie within the household that, you know, we looked out for one another. We, we overlooked a lot of things. A lot of things didn't bother us. We saw our friends with the nice sneakers on. Back then it was Converse's and Puma Clyde's and they come to school with the jeans creased and the, you know, and the, and the nice pants. You know, we had the pants made back then. You know, you have a made, you know, nice. And we just had whatever we can get. Salvation Army, whatever. And they used to laugh at us. You know, they used to joke with us. But education was another thing that she instilled in us big time. I can remember as a young man, Sesame Street. She used to sit me down and say, listen, you're gonna sit here for the whole program. And you, I want you to watch Sesame Street every day. And I want you to get your verbal thing together. I want you to be more articulate. And that's gonna teach you, son. 
is sit there and sound out your words and understand what's going on. And subliminally, you know, it, it's going it's going to settle in. And this those type of things that are not really being done today, that a lot of the students are missing out on, that that old time learning, that old time in your face, getting it done on a regular basis, day to day. After school is over, we still we still grinding. My mother would say, okay, when you come home from school, we got school. I said, what do you mean we got school? School over? No, no, we got more school. You're going to sit down there and you're going to do your homework and then you're going to read this and you're going to do that and I'm going to have words for you. I'm going to have stuff for you to do. And, and that's how we lived our life young. You know, we didn't have much, but, but we understood the plight because remember, the, the, the movements was from the 60s going into the 70s, right? So we still was community-based, right? Remember, we, you know, all the civil rights movements, you know, 65, 66, 67, all that flowed into the 70s. So we still have a certain family structure where the father may not have been there, but a lot of things wasn't stripped from us. You understand? There was a lot of things that were still probably pouring more into us with the civil rights. Then once the civil rights movement was over and the depletion of the family structure, then you see what you have today. You know, kids misinformed, not understanding their history. Not Because, you know, when I sat down, grandma be up in there talking about what she used to do back in the day. You know, with, with, my, with my, my dad, you know, how she used to hit him over the head and how you did do this and do that. And I said, what? Whoa, hey. So she put the fear of God in us too. Because, <laughs> I mean, you a thug like that, grandma. <laughs> you know? So all that is, is gone. Big mama, all that, there's no structure no more. You know. so, so I know you mentioned your dad for a moment there. Well, how long was he with you? I mean, what do you remember of your dad? Well, my, my dad was a was a laborer. You know, he my mother was educated herself. You know, she she graduated from Adelphi University. You know, even though she had us, she struggled and she made she made a way through education to push herself. My father on the other side was a laborer, so he was into um, contracting. You know, back in the day, you know, Eastern Parkway and over there in Brooklyn, you know, the big tenement buildings, apartment buildings. He would go in and he would he would do the painting and he would do the stuff. So from nine, I would say from nine to about, he must have left when I was about maybe, maybe 12, completely gone, 12, he's just out of there. So from my younger days, he used to take us around with him on the weekends and he used to have us work for him and carry stuff and, and understand plumbing. Like right now, I'm a very good carpenter and a very good electrician in plumbing, believe it or not. I, I do have all these skills from young. You know, and he when he left, it it was a it was a big void for us because you know I got two sisters and the rest brothers, so we, we needed that father type balance. Because all my friends had their dads coming to the games. You know, I played a little basketball. We did a little this, and I was like, whoa, man, what's, what's the story with this here? You know, never show up. Just don't. He'll say he's coming by. You know, to pick us up. So we used to get up early in the morning. <laughs> I never forget this. It's it's very vivid right now in my mind. We we used to get up early in the morning. And uh, he said, I'm going to be there at nine. We go out there on the stoop. You know, back then we play handball and stoop ball and all that, waiting for him. Then all of a sudden it started to get dark. You know, he ain't showing today. He ain't showing. Then my, my mother would say, okay, listen, guys, we're going to go get some ice cream. So everything that he did that would have had a detriment on us, she managed to do something to counteract that. Mm. To say, okay, that happened, but you got this. Right. So dad's gone. And, and, but I'm still going to try to fill in, but I'm going to still be tough on y'all. I ain't going to be easy. I'm going to be like, like dad, but mm -hmm. this is how we're going to balance it out. So when he left, it, it was hard. You know, he didn't really come by in games and, 
and, and you know, communicate with us and things of that nature. So it was a void, but it, it didn't stop me the way my background was, the way my mother was raising us. It didn't stop me from saying like today people have excuses like, well, my father wasn't, you know, my father ain't there, so I'm on drugs. Or, or I'm alcoholic because my father wasn't there for me. My mother always said this, you're an individual when you're born. Whether daddy's there or not, you are an individual and you got to control your destiny. And every decision you make in life is either going to be a positive or a negative. You got to figure it out. And that's, that's, if you get that every day and you come on with some crap and you get that every day, eventually you'll start to say, you know what? Yeah, I can do this. I can overcome that. I can, I can make it happen. Mm -hmm. You know? And sometimes the young people today, they just don't know their way. They don't, they can't navigate because they don't have a rites of passage to say, this is the way to go. This is a good idea. A lot of them pretty much don't even talk anymore. You know, there's no communication with, with today's technology. So it's kind of hard. So tell me, I mean, tell me, you know, moving right on into that, you, you, you talked about the rites of passage, you know, and, and becoming a man. And you talked about, you know, your mom stepping in in the gap, right? And right. You, and then you also talked about the, there was an influence from your dad up until 12, right? And he gave That's you right. and carried you and that you were able to use as a young adult. So what is true about you on your path, right? And so in your rites of passage, what, had that, what happened for you to become that young man? Well, uh, I would say high school. After, after, I got out, you know, after I graduated from middle school, high school, there was a lot more, remember back in the day, there was a lot more, um, I would say, men working in the school system. So a lot, a lot of brothers, you know, working in the school system back there, you know, these after school programs, you know, they had something called the Bushwick Royals. That's when I started my marching band uh, 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 endeavors and things like that. So they had so much going on. So high school was sort of like that, that pinnacle in life where you can go either way and the drug scene was heavier then and people smoking weed and, you know, drinking in Boone's Farm and all that wine back in the day, you know. So, I still had to make a choice to be a part. So I was a part, but I was not a part. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, like while y'all go hang out, I'm gonna get the work done and then I'm gonna hang out with you. I'm not gonna smoke and do the stuff y'all doing, but I'm there, you know what I'm saying? But I had to balance it out because I had to be a part of the, the, the I would say the environment somehow. I didn't wanna be an outcast because if you're an outcast, then forget about it. It becomes another issue. So yeah, you want to fit in, did not fit in, and you know, that cool guy. But remember, I had the street knowledge and I also had the home knowledge. So I had the maneuverability to think out the box, think a little further than what they were thinking. They were smart, but I had to be smarter. You see, I had to plan myself to be able to be around them, but just be a little swift. And I outsmarted them for many years. And that was the pinnacle of my life. And it taught me a great deal on how to maneuver. Once again, my mother, the fine work, uh, uh, groundwork, and then the maneuverability as I got into high school, I knew how to maneuver around. So that was my pinnacle right there. And then uh, I would say the, the biggest experience I had was uh, a change in my life is when I, I applied for college. When, when, when I started thinking about college and I started thinking about a career, you know, what do I want to do with my life? Because that's the scary part. Because once you leave high school, most people don't understand and parents may not even understand that you have a comfort zone from elementary to high school, right? People are nurturing you and they, they treating you good. And they, and you know, the teachers are hugging you, telling you, okay, you could do it. And you, you're being, you're being supported, supported in a lot of different ways. So when you get to the 12th grade, 
it's almost like you leave a mommy house because all those people that cared about you are going to start to leave and you got to go. And now once you leave high school, you wake up the next morning, the summertime is here and you're saying, what am I going to do with my life now? Did I decide to go to college? Am I going to take a trade? Or is there somebody to mentor me to tell me what I need to do? Am I prepared academically to go to college, even though my parents want me to go? Do I have the foundation? Because I'm just going to go in and drop out anyway. Or do I go take a trade? Because I know I could probably do that before. I... See, these are the things that are the rites of passage that we don't discuss with our kids, you know, and our students at an earlier age, before they get to high school. You see, so they don't have that, that, that traumatical type of thing where they don't know and they get frustrated and depressed and then they start doing other things because they have no out. They don't know the out. Like we, most of us didn't know the out, but if we have a strong foundation, we can know the out. So that was like the rites of passage when it was time to go to college and I had to figure out what I wanted to do uh, so you, in my life. So you talked about the marching band as, as early, getting early engagement in that. What was that like? I mean, what was that about? So that was your, that was your thing because some people have basketball, some people have sports, but, bat, but the marching band seemed to be your thing. Well, so when, I was, when I was about five, well, no, let me get it right now. Five, six years old, my mother, bought, my mother bought me a drum set. Right? A swing line drum set. I'll never forget that drum set, man. It was metallic orange. And my grandfather was a saxophone player. So he was, he was there. He was instrumental. He was in and out. But he was a jazz player. And he needed a drummer. So he made me the drummer. But I like drums. I used to watch all the concerts, like rock concert, Don Costner rock concert, and all the Saturday shows come on with Earth, Wind & Fire, live band. You know, 70s live band, man. They're getting down. And we used to watch that man on TV. And they used to go, I said, man, I want to be like that. And my grandfather said, we're going to get you a drum set. We're going to try to get you a set. We were poor. We didn't have the money, but they scraped it up. They got me a set. But I didn't know that that was going to be a turning point in my life because he needed a, he needed a drummer while he played his saxophone. So here I am sitting on the drum, want to do my own thing. I want to bang and play and just groove. He said, no, no, no. You're going to follow me. I'm playing this riff. This is how you're going to play it. And I'm sitting there, man, doing, a, doing riffs on the, on the, uh, on the ride cymbal. He do, and I'm back there playing, and and after a while, you know, I was like really getting into it. You know, I, you know, he was teaching me, but I didn't know he was teaching me the correct way to really approach the drum set. So after that, this program opened up called the Bushwick Royals. I never forget. There was there was a, a old folks home across from where I lived on on uh, Bushwick Avenue. I lived on Martha Street, so right across was uh, old folks home, which they the old folks they moved them out. So they made it like a rec center. There was no basketball or nothing, but it was like a little rec center. So on the first floor, they had the Bushwick Royals. I had to, I was young though. I was, when I first started that, I had to be about maybe, maybe 10, 11. So everybody in the Bushwick Royals was, was older. But my mother had a lot of influence in the area. She was with the politicians and all that kind of thing. So she said, my son want to join, he going to join. But everybody else in there was teenagers. So they, back in the day, the drums were heavy, man. They, that was that heavy plywood that you couldn't even lift the drum. You had to have muscle, you had to work out. But I said, the guy said, okay, we're gonna fix him. We're gonna give him that snare drum and see if he can play it, if he can hold it. Man, I fought through, that's another thing that built that whole, whole power structure in the mind that I want it bad enough. I don't care if it hurts, I'm gonna do this. And they strapped that drum on me, man. And I was playing with them old guys. And they said, this guy, we gotta break this nine, 10 year old. He, he, don't worry, he gonna fall. And I would be, I would be hurt, man. I go home, 
I tell my sister, listen, my shoulder hurt, the strap was low. Could you take care of that for me? She rub it down for me and fix it. And I go back the next day. And after a while, I, they believed in me as a young man. They said, yo, this guy got some determination. He gonna do this. And I learned everything I had to learn about it. I even went to other drums because I, I had finished the snare, then I went to the quad and the bass. And before you know it, we would have, we would have um, parades down Bushwick Avenue every year. It was a big thing. We had like mansions and stuff on Bushwick Avenue back in the day in the seventies. It was very, very, very beautiful back then. You know, we hadn't had, the, I think the blackouts, you know, around like the 77 and we had two blackouts that hit Bushwick that really de destroyed it. You know, all the stores were gone. There was just nothing there, demolished it. And maybe today they're starting, even up until today, gentrification is coming, they're starting to rebuild it. But, but back then, that, that was big for me. That, that helped me in my development is fighting through that process. Wow, that's a lot, you know. Um, and, and that, that whole, the, you know, the, the given context to the, to the whole Bushwick scene was serious. I mean, it was going on there in terms of, you know, trying to keep the focus, but the environment is up in flames. Oh right? man, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, we had, I, I can recall uh, sitting on a stoop and people was running down the block with, with half of a cow on their back. And I'm telling myself, you ain't got no refrigerator. You know, ain't got nothing going on and you run down. I've seen people run down with TVs and get halfway down Bushwick Avenue and drop it, boom. <laughs> you know, it was just a, a mayhem, a frenzy. And being a young man seeing that, I'm like, uh, you know, that's once again, these things that are visual to you that you see happening to your people back then, like we never had nothing. So we just gonna take everything that's here. We, we gonna do this, not understanding after the smoke clears, what do you have left? If you're destroying it, I mean, it's a blackout. Of course, these things happen, but that doesn't mean you go to a sneaker store and you just take everything out the sneaker store and sell them on the corner the next day. But then what if you wanna, the family member wanna go shopping and you don't have the size that they want, they need sneakers or they need shoes. See, we, we tend not to really think about the aftermath. You know, we, we gotta be conscious of that. And we just sit there and watch. My mother had us on the stoop. It's dark. You know, we outside, not in the house. Hot, summer, summer heat. And we sit out there and we just watch the mayhem go on. And she would say, see, look at this here. I don't want y'all doing nothing like this here. This is unnecessary. Y'all don't need to do this. You know, you know, you got to provide for yourself. You don't need to go out and steal somebody else's goods or another man's goods or destroy somebody else's property for your own benefit for a short time, short-term gratification. She always spoke on short-term things that look at the long-term. You know, a lot of people, especially young people today say, well, what if I don't make it to 20? But what if you do? What if you, what if you make it to 80? You know, I don't know if I'm gonna live to 21. Yeah, but, 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 but you, don't, you don't determine how you gonna live. Even if you're doing the wrong thing, you can't determine how far you gonna go. You, you counting yourself out that early? I mean, think about your future. Think about what you can do. We're all in this thing together, you know? That's right. That's right. So now let's, 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 let's start catching up, you know? So we got, we got your youth, and now you, you're in Wall Street. And so you, you're in this Wall Street venture, another <laughs> passage, right? That, yes. you, you know, you, you start there, but you don't end there. So just, just take us on that journey. Okay, uh, Wall Street. Okay, so th th there was different ways you can go back then, right? So, you know, after college, you know, you ask yourself, okay, what do I want to do right now? Okay, so they got civil service work. You can be a garbage man, uh, you know, sanitation, you know, uh, motorman, police department, corrections. 
Okay, then you got Wall Street. Everybody making big money, right? Unionized situation, job security, but very little pay at the time, right? Wall Street, you can walk right in there and make 60 grand, right? At, at 22, 23 years old. You're like, ooh. So that looks good right then. But once again, the silver surface is future retirement, right? Longevity to an extent, Wall Street short term. So I remember uh, going to Wall Street. I always went, every time I had a job, it was from the ground up. It was never walking into something where it was as gratifying. It, you know, you just walk right into that spot. You know, you see on TV, you just walk into something. But as a black man, in, in, in the uh, early, I would say, early 80s, it wasn't that easy just to step into a job because you still had a, a how would I say, a subtle racism uh, had already, was still existing, especially in Wall Street because they didn't really hire many blacks until certain things came out saying that you got to hire X amount of blacks in corporate worlds, is going to be a problem, right? So they started hiring, you know, more black folks to come in. So I went in, when I first went to Wall Street, I went in what they call a nostril accounting department. I had my degree, it was nostril accounting. Nostril accounting is basically foreign exchange accounting, accounting for Japanese yen, for the corporation, pound sterlings, uh, exotic currencies, all these type of things I was in charge of to understand the bookkeeping. So as we trade, you know, you got your ins and outs, you got your debits and credits, you got your balance sheet. You got to make sure that all the traders, what they did for the day, balanced out. All right, that was the first, that was the first thing. So that was cool because I worked with a few people that were kind of young, you know, they wasn't really, how would I say, into the racist thing. You know, they were just, we were young. So, you know, out of school, we just chilling. Everybody's cool. So after that, uh, I went into an investigative thing to in investigate why certain things are happening on Wall Street with the money. Where's it going? Did we pay it to the wrong person? How do we retrieve that money back? How do we make our books whole? So I became a special, everything I touched, I tried to be the best I can be. I tried to learn everything about that position that needs to know and more and, and, and got so good at it. I started creating stuff for the department and that gave me longevity because 29 years on Wall Street, that gave me you know, longevity to learn things. After that, I was approached, I never forget, I was in, a, in the men's room and I washed my hands, you know, and the chief trader of the company came in. He's, he's probably, I mean, tons of money, you know, these guys, chief trader, top guy, he runs the floor. And he saw me because they needed Afro-American people to go on the trading floor. You know what I'm saying? It, there was a problem with, you know, in, in the papers and stuff that they weren't hiring enough blacks to be on the trading floor to achieve a certain goal. So he saw me in the bathroom and he knew my track record that I was one of the best investigators they had. He said, listen, I, I want to offer you a job. You, would you like to come on the trading floor? And I looked at him, I said, well, why is this man playing with me about the trading floor? But I already knew that they needed blacks. I already knew that they needed Afro-American, you know, black folks to be on the trading floor. So he offered me the job. He said, I want you to come in the ground level and um, I want you on the floor, man. I'm gonna talk to your boss and we're gonna get you right away. Once I received, once I got on the trading floor, man, it was a whole different ball game. It, the racism was so thick, you can cut it with a knife. That's how it was. Because they're saying to themselves, even though the chief trader knew that I wanted this guy here, that doesn't mean that the supporting cast wanted the guy there, right? So he came in, I can't hear you coming through. Uh, no, I got you, I got you. All right, so they were there and uh, so I went in and, and this is the thing that got me. The, the gentleman that was doing it before me was white. 
He was Italian. So I'm coming in and I had to handle their orders. Because remember, it's a 24-hour business and orders come from all over the world as we're trading throughout the day. You know, your stop loss orders, your take profit orders and things of that nature. If something is not fulfilled, it's got to go on to the next branch. Hmm. So it could be, it could be uh, uh, I would say, Goldman Sachs and, and Tokyo or various branches where the orders. And we even took orders from other companies, right, that we would take care of during the day to see if, the, if they would hit those marks. If it don't hit, you got to pass it on to their next correspondent bank. So anyway, the first thing I had to do to understand orders, I had to run around the floor. It was 40 traders on the floor. So as a, as a junior trader coming in, I had to go and take orders in the morning for breakfast from every guy on the floor. They wanted to see if I can order the coffee, the donuts. Now, any other brother would have said, yo, man, y'all got to be out your mind. But me understanding from where I come from, humility and understanding and being objective about things that this may make me better to remember things. So if the order is wrong, they're going to tell you, well, Larry, I ordered a, a, you know, a ginger ale and this and that. And you, where my ginger ale at? So I would have to call up the, the shop again and say, listen, can you send up a ginger ale? Or, or, you know, I asked for a bagel with cream cheese and you just send me a bagel with butter. That's wrong. So that you had to do. That was your rites of passage on the trading floor. You had to go through this type of vigorous thing. And then after a while, they started giving you positions. Now, remember, whenever you're working for any sometime organizations, you got to do double the work. You ain't going to do be everybody else, you know, one thing to do. You're going to do double. So you're going to work. So I had to do the orders. And then, you know, was, you know, when you go to a bank, let's say you're traveling to, a, let's say you're going to Japan, right? And you want to do an exchange of Japanese yen. You would go to the teller window. Right. And you say, well, I want X amount of yen because I'm traveling abroad to exchange for this amount of dollars I have. So what they would do is they would call up to the trader floor and that would be me. And they say, can you give me a level on Japanese yen? I would go to the Reuters, talk to one of the brokers, say, what's the level on yen? Let's say he gave me something like a 115.35. Right. So what happens is it's a profit margin of five pips. So I would have to adjust it by five pips call down and say, this is what the price is, okay? So now at the end of the day, if you do your pricing in and out, you, you have to end up with a profit mm. because we do an exchange for you. Mm. So all these things went into play, the racism and all that, and, and just going through things. And every day they, they would have uh, big events that we would go to, uh, big Reuter parties. I mean, it, what you see on TV was pretty much what it was. Mm. When you were a trader, back in them days where the money was plentiful and things was happening, you, you know, you, you go to a, 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 an event, a Reuters party, they got limousines lined up outside to take you door to door, take you home. Wow. You just jump in one and go right, right on home. If they had a Christmas party, it would be at the most exclusive places on the planet. That you, and these are the experiences that I had now to think about it. Now, a little guy from Brooklyn, I'm here with all the heavy hitters, making money, CEOs, chief traders at these luxurious, they got shrimps as big as your hand in there. They got, they got lobster as long as a table, right? Anything you want right there, and you're in the midst of this here, and you're just taking it all in, but you're not you losing who you are as a person, right? Because you always have to remember where you come from, that you're just a guest. I always look at everything I do as just a guest. Like some people that I worked with, they, they would have a shrine on their, on their desktop. You know, they would have pictures of the family and the kids and all that. And, this and that. And I've always realized that this, this is not my company. I'm just a worker. So 
If they tap me on the shoulder tomorrow, I'm just getting up leaving. I ain't packing no boxes. I ain't packing no pens. I'm not doing none of that. And, you know, you got people who got shrines and everything. And, and they used to come out here, Larry, you know, how about your picture you found? I said, no, that's cool. Everything good, man. I'm just, I'm just trying to do this job, man. That's all I'm trying to do. And when it's time to roll, I'm rolling. Right. <laughs> you don't have to tell me nothing. And, and that was my experience on Wall Street. And I remember, uh, I would say later on, as the years started going on, you know, it, it started getting more pressurized because then I started having my own desk. You know, I started trading yen and I was with the big boys now. And, and you have positions you had to take. And I never forget, there was a woman that was handling, a trader that was handling the Hong Kong dollars. And I never forget this. I was doing uh, Australian dollars, uh, Aussie dollars, and French francs, right? And I had it under control. So she got ill for some reason. They said, oh, you're going to do Hong Kong dollars. I said, Hong Kong dollars? I mean, I really don't know much about the research on that. So this is when the Beijing crisis happened. I don't know if you recall that. Over in China, it, it, it's a big uprising. Remember the guy stood in front of the tank and all this kind of stuff and yeah, then yeah, all yeah. crazy and all that. Yeah. So now the market is in a frenzy. She's out and I'm doing Hong Kong dollars. I'm sitting in the middle of the trading floor and everybody's screaming out, asking me for prices and things are going. Let me tell you how the mind works. The mind is amazing, man. The mind is amazing. If you focus on, how would I say, uh, panic mode, right? If you get into panic mode, you can't think, right? It's a cloud that comes over you and it's, a, it's like an out-of-body experience that you can't. But if you poised and you, your body and your mind is in one, you can, man, I was trading like I did Hong Kong dollars for years. I was trading that stuff. They were looking, and see, that was almost part of my demise because now I remember all of the people that was on the floor, the majority were Caucasian. Ooh. They were coming to me, asking me for prices for their clients mm. and their customers. Mm. And I'm sitting there trading like a seasoned trader. I've only been there three, four years. I'm, I'm in there rocking, you know, right? Because remember, every time you do a trade, you got to notate. If it's going out or coming in, and you got to maintain your position to make sure that you have enough position at the end of the day, that if the market goes a certain way, you're not short or long, causing, the, causing you to have a loss, mm. right? So I had to maintain that the market at the time was going short. Right? It was a sell-off because of the crisis depreciated the Hong Kong dollar to an extent. Mm. So I had to make sure that whatever position I have in and out, if I give you 50, I got to get back 50 at a, a better price before it drops, right? So you're going back and forth. Me being young, I, 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 man, I can't recall my age at the time. I can't, but I know I was in there in the battlefield. And after it was all over, I'll tell you how everything works. After it was all over, we settle up. I think I, I, think I made something like a I don't know, like, like two million or something. I don't know in profit for the company. I don't, I don't know. I don't know some kind of crazy number. I didn't even realize it. And I was still making money long after that day because things were reversed and going the wrong way and all kinds of stuff. So it was always a positive. And I remember the chief trader, uh, he, didn't, he didn't give me my props in front of everyone. Mm. He, he didn't give me no accolades in front of anyone. He took me to the office. And he said, you know, I just want to let you know you did a great job today. You know, that, you know, it was, it was volatile out there and you held your own. And I just, I just want to thank you for that. You know, wow, you know, whoo, you know, that was beautiful, blah, blah, blah. We're going to give you a good bonus and this and that. But in the back of my mind, my bonus never compared to what they were getting. Because remember, we were young together, some of the guys in there, and they were walking out of there with 70, 80 grand bonus, bro, 90 grand bonus. 
They might hit me with a 30 grand bonus, 25 capital gains tax. You walk home with like, let's say $15,000. Mm. But then when you, you're doing double the work though. Right. See what I'm saying? You helping them, you assisting them in certain things, but, but yet you're not being rewarded that way. But that, this was the climate. We can't denote that. That was something that we had to deal with. Can, can a lot of individuals today, if they was to go back to that environment, handle it? I don't think so. I don't think so. You had to be a special type of person mentally to figure it out. I'm not knocking my bragging on myself, but if you look at Wall Street and you look at trading and you look at the whole scene, it, it's not an easy thing to do. It's a very, very demanding thing. And that was a big time, right? of passage. And then it was at a time I said, well, it's time to retire. It, it, was, it was time to retire. And once I retired, it's funny though, because uh, my mother-in-law, and this, this is uh, the funny thing, which is another step in my life which got me into the drums in the school system and helping the school system out. Uh, my, my mother-in-law passed away and uh, I adopted her three boys. Mm. She had three boys, she adopted. So I adopted the three boys, right? And I remember the summer that I said, you know, I called it quits and handed my papers and everything, you know, you walk around, who wants to retire, you get everything going. Then, you know, you try to figure out what pension you're getting and all this kind of stuff. So I had had enough of, of this, to, things was changing and, and, and it was just out of control at the so time. This was, is after 29 years. Yeah, this is like 9-11 and all this stuff was happening. This is, I got out of there before 9-11. You know, all this stuff was starting to happen. You know, it's after 29 years of service, but things started being, things were rough. Let me, let me put it this way. Things was rough before 9-11. Hmm. The job market, remember Bush was in office and the job market for, for blacks at the time was kind of tight. Unemployment was high. We couldn't find jobs. So it's a lot of things going on before 9-11 even happened. Hmm. Okay. And things were changing for us a great deal. But once 9-11 happened, that just put a seal on it. That, that unfortunately, that just knocked everything out the box. So whatever chance that we had to really get employment and things of that nature, forget about it. So now we got to start from scratch now. Okay. So I remember saying, you know, that's it for me. I had enough. Let me see what I'm going to do. So back to my, my mother-in-law passed away at Dr. Street Boys. So this is funny how, how life, it, it's almost that your journey is already preordained for you on how you move. And I'm going to really get to that in detail right now, right? So young men came to me and I wanted to put them in something for the summer. My wife sat down and said, we got to put them in summer again. They ain't going to hang around the house all summer. So I was good with the precinct in the area, um, you know, and they told me, well, you know, we run this youth police academy every summer. I said, I said, well, where is it at? They said, well, if you go down to the school over here for Springfield, there's a school there, they do it every summer, go speak to Sergeant so-and-so, you know, whatever. I said, okay, cool. I took the boys down, we went there. And I said, hey man, how you doing? Listen, my name's Larry Carthen, you know, I want to get my boy. Now nah, we fill. We got no room. I said, man, I need to get them in a camp. I mean, I, you know, because remember, pension and stuff, things don't start moving until after a while. So I'm like, oh, man, I can't pay for nothing. This is a free camp. You got, they got to come to the camp. Come on, man. So he said, no, no, no. I said, I'll tell you what. I'm a, a drum tech. I know marching band stuff. I know drums very well. Why don't I come in two days a week and we barter, right? I'll teach them the drums. You don't got to pay me nothing, but my kids, my sons has got to be in the program. He says, give me a minute. Let me think. Uh, yeah, yeah, we got room, right? So they got in. So now I should have, my obligation was sound. It was hot, man. The gym was hot. You know, you had these chairs out, these tables out, and I would go in there. 
with the young men. I, I think I was doing like 30 guys at a time. And we would have the drumsticks and we're working on all this rudiments and things of that nature. So I never forget, the principal runs down. He nearly fell. He ran down so fast, he nearly fell coming through the gym. He was so excited that I was there. He, he didn't know me. I didn't know him. He came in. He, he said, listen, when you're done, come see me. Please come see me, sir. I said, no problem. And I'm going to show you how destiny and certain things happen. So I finished up, all sweaty and everything. So I'm going off. He said, how would you like to work for me? Uh, coming into the school. And uh, we have a gentleman here um, who teaches downstairs, our music guy, but he cannot control the masses. He has no control over the kids. Hmm. You had the same type of students in the YPA that go to the school and you had them under some serious control. Hmm. So I want to know if you can bring that to the table for me. You know, I'll pay you whatever, you know, it is. We can work it out. Logistics. I said, well, okay, cool. I said, you know what? You're blessed, man, because I'm retired now. And all I got is some time. We can make it happen. So I started with him. I would go in and I understood the disconnect between some teachers and students. Okay. That you cannot force students to do things that they feel they're not capable of doing. That's right. You have to convince them that they can be capable, that they can do it, that don't be afraid of it. But you have to do that. You just can't say, I'm a teacher and do it. No, because I'm afraid. And if you could tap into, because I was a student once, you got to understand. If you're afraid, then I got to maneuver each and 30 kids in the class. I'm going to try to figure out how to maneuver around the class to make sure everybody's engaged and everybody get the idea that they can accomplish a goal and we ain't putting nobody down. Ain't nobody better than nobody else. Right. A lot of times, you're not going to teacher college and getting that. You know, you, there's certain things that you got to figure out for yourself. That's right. So, I, was, I managed to control the class till we had a band, man. I'm talking about we had something like, I don't know, 50, maybe 80 kids. I, I, he, could, he could teach the horn. I mean, I would go in there. If I had a day off, there'd be a problem. But when I was there, the structure was there. They knew what they had to do. I wasn't trying to play. Because I had a cell phone. I called your mother in a minute and said, Ms. Jones, listen, can you got a minute? Come get him because it's a problem. Right. The music teacher probably wouldn't do that. He, he wouldn't call Ms. Jones, you know, he would just try to handle it himself. But sometimes you need reinforcements when you see that you have some resistance in some kind of way that's disrupting the masses. That's you right. you want control, right? So that was going great, man. The band was kicking. So let me let me tell you how faith have it, man. So here we are doing this here and we making it happen. And all of a sudden someone from an after school program comes down and say, listen man, listen, listen, I got to have this in the after school, baby. You know, we need to have this here. So now I'm doing morning, break, and then come back in the afternoon. So now God is, is providing me with, you know, I, I, it's a blessing. God has blessed me throughout my life. It, it, it allowed me to, to say, you know what? I'm helping kids. It's not really about the money. Sometimes you don't think about the money because if you think about money, you can't do nothing. I'm going to be honest with you. Because you think about getting paid and you ain't think about trying to teach them nothing. You just say, where that check? Right. But if you have a certain thing in your heart, right? That you really want to see somebody succeed. You don't think about the pay, the money and all that. You think about making sure they get it because they're an extension of us, right? They're black, Latino, white, Greek. They're still an extension of us because if you implant something in them, the only thing they can do with it is just take it and give it to somebody else. 
Mm-hmm. Right? It's innate that you give it away. So I did that for a while, and I never forget they had this big conference, uh, a teachers conference. Uh, what is it? It was at uh, was it Jamaica Town Hall somewhere in Queens? Flushing Town Hall. That's right, Flushing Town Hall. And it was nothing but principals in there. And I have this this thirty piece band. There's this band that's kicking, that's playing all the top tunes. Kids playing. You know, you got the you know, white kids, Latino kids. You you got the black kids. You got it's it's just a small. Everybody's everybody's in the group. Everybody's camaraderie. Everybody's getting along and making it happen, right? As one unit. And that's what the band brings. It brings a camaraderie where it's like family. Right. Right? So we're in there playing, playing, playing. So the principal was like, wow, look at this. How did he get these kids to do that? Wow. So then they started giving me their business cards, right? And they say, okay, listen, if you get a chance, call me. If you get a chance, call me. So I'm like, ah, this, you know, people just talk stuff, whatever. So I wasn't calling them, you know, because I already had the job, you know, everything. But then they started finding me and they said, well, can you come to my school for an hour? Can you come from my school for two hours? So then I started saying, you know what? I want to help as many kids as I can. I want to enrich as many kids as I can, students as I can, scholars as I can. So I'm going to make the effort to travel throughout the five boroughs, wherever they want. Because I believe wherever I go, God put me there for a reason. There may be some kids in there that need my services. And he says, okay, your next assignment, whether you know it or not, uh, Brother Larry, you're going to be going over there. Are you going to be going to the Bronx? Are you, you going to be going to, to, to Queens? Are you, you're going to go somewhere because I need you to help these particular kids that need your insight. And, and, and everything is driven not by me, by, by another uh, power, right? So as I go into different schools, the thing that intrigued me the most about today is that every school I go into, I don't care the way, whether it's the Sheba, I don't care if it's uh, uh, all all. all white or black or Latino or Indian, one thing that we all have in common, kids are all the same no matter who they are mm. or what ethnic background they are. They're all the same. They have the same plight. They have the same ideas, right? How you maneuver is how your family structure helps you, right? Some of us don't have it. So you know who don't have and who does. When I walk into a classroom, I know who has a family structure, who's, who's pushing them to do certain things. I know a family that is materialistic to make sure their son dress all day long, but he ain't working on no books, okay? So you start to learn everywhere you go that everybody is the same. Mm-hmm. You got your poorer kids who are fighting harder to make it because all they got is education. You have your more kids that have things that they don't have to worry about their mommy and daddy taking care of everything. They're not fighting this hard. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? Because I'm gonna be taking care of regardless. Mm. But the ones that don't have and the ones that really have a struggle, if you could just get them geared right, they become great people. Right. If you look at all the stories, if you go back and you check out all the, the famous people. We can talk about, about your story. We can use your story, you yourself. Yeah, well, like even me. You know, when you when, when you look at my, my story, right? Um, right? All the things I don't have, I, you know, awards and, and all kinds of accolades and awards and TV programs and, and voicing my opinion to try to encourage others to follow my footsteps, to this, just to get out and try whatever you know, try to share it with some of the young people today. You know, you copping to go out and try to share some of that with, grab a few, few kids, man. Just grab them, you know, you, you cutting grass, grab a few kids, man. Let them, 
Because one thing about students, right, and young people, if you give them an idea, either they're going to run with it or they're going to run away from it. Ten times out of one, I believe they're going to they're gonna stay with it. It all depends on how you present it. And if you present it good enough, they're going to be great at it. You know, they're going to learn it. They, they, they're going to cherish it. The mentorship is very important to the communities around us. All mentorship. I, I, I'm a mentor, uh, uh, yeah, father. I'm a little bit of everything to kids because everybody has their own plight and everybody's looking for something different. Everybody has a, certain issues. And you have to be able to be so open-minded to deal with everything and don't put nobody down and don't discount nobody or, or don't say they can't do it or they can do it. Just be open-minded where if they come to you and just try to figure out what their needs are and how, and how we can help them to make them better. And me, you know, I come from that a uh, long journey, man, a long journey. And as of today, man, I thank God for all that he's put into me and all the people that came around me and surrounded me and all the blessings that always came my way when I least expected, you know, that, that sometime, you know, you think about things and what's going to happen the next day. You know, we, we got COVID-19 now, which is a whole nother scenario that, that we as people have to figure out, all people. You know, we got the Black Lives Matter movement. That's another thing that our young people, see, we must think about the young people are experiencing this traumatic type of uh, phenomenon that's going on. And we have to, as parents, have to really be even more diligent and stronger to say, okay, listen, this is how this thing is working. And don't believe everything you see. Don't believe everything you hear. I'm gonna be your voice. And I'm gonna tell you how we're gonna get through this together as a family. I think family, I think, I think somehow this whole thing brought so much family together, man. I, you know, you can sit down and eat a meal now with your kids in front of you. <laughs> you could talk to them now because nobody running out nowhere, you know? Listen, Carton, thank you. I just want to, I want to end our interview there. Listen, you, you've answered all of our questions and you give us a lot of insight. I'm sure that a lot of listeners will, will, will be able to hear you and I'll be able to imply, you know, uh, apply, you know, all of the, uh, the jewels that you've given us today. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me, man. I, you know, I, I, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, anytime you can, you know, uh, speak your mind and talk on issues of today, of yesterday, and, and people can hear how a certain, you know, life-changing events for one person, a black male in, in the community, have survived all these years on, on various situations and still here, still standing. Well said, well said, well Thanks for listening to Pushing Boundaries. Once again, my name is Sharif Rucker. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do me a favor by commenting, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with everyone you know. All of these things are free and take very little effort, but would mean the world to me. Thanks again and stay tuned.